0: Welcome to another PI World podcast. This is an audio only version offered as another way to enjoy our great content. A full video version can be seen on piworld.co.uk, where you can find many more videos of interest to investors.
1: Thanks everyone for coming along this morning, uh, attending this session. We're delighted to take you through our half On results for FY22, amazing numbers as you'll as you'll hear when we come and talk through the numbers in a second for those of you that don't know us a quick intro so i'm neil Gandhi. i'm the ceo co-founder of the group and i'm joined by ollie rigby cfo and co-founder as well so i guess how we're going to run today a quick summary from me without going into too many of the numbers without stealing ollie's thunder and then financial and esg results from ollie and then i'll come back with an operational review strategy outlook and then we'll open up for q a so a quick half year summary you know, in terms of growth, you know, excellent financial growth, seventy-seven percent revenue growth, of which twenty-one percent like-for-like growth, one hundred and eighteen percent cash conversion ratio. So, you know, the business continues to grow incredibly well. We have growth in our key markets, including growth in healthcare. Healthcare, you know, we won NHS blood and transplant, NHS Business Services Authority, continue to work with NHS Digital, continue to work with NHS X, Both of those obviously rolling into NHS England um, going forwards. We appointed. Noel Gordon was a healthcare advisor. Noel was non-exec director on NHS England until 2020 and previously chaired NHS Digital as well. So really building out our capabilities in healthcare and our brand in in healthcare. Um, One thing we're really pleased with is institutional holders has gone from 8% in September 20 to 21% today. So real growth in institutional holders um, and continued momentum there. So we're really happy with that. In terms of expansion acquisitions, we acquired Nudge Digital. That put us into the pharmaceutical sector. Today, we count four or five major pharmaceutical companies as clients. Obviously, that puts us onto their approved supplier list. And you know, getting on those approved supplier lists is very difficult. So it gives us an opportunity now to really expand out our, our offer um, through that acquisition. We've talked about building out our team. And then the big news, I guess, for the half has been the move to a single new brand, TPX Impact, and the beginnings of the implementation of the unitary structure. I'll come and explain some of that in a bit more detail later on. And investment for growth, and again, I'll explain Open Dialog, which is a new product, a new SaaS product that we launched in August, and, and what's happening with that as we look to send that off on its journey and into its own trajectory. So look, that, that's a quick intro from me. I'll, I'll hand straight over to Ollie.
2: Morning. Thank you, Neil. Um... Thanks everyone for taking the time this morning to um, to hear us run through the results. As Neil said, yeah, fantastic set of half-year results. Absolutely delighted with them. Revenue up 77% to 37 and But as Neil alluded to, most pleasingly, we continue the like-for-like organic growth that we saw in prior year with 21% organic growth in the first half of the year. That has translated into strong EBITDA growth, up 83% to 5.3 million against prior year 2.9 million probably most pleasingly though is that we've seen a 40 basis point improvement in EBITDA margin from 13.7 percent to 14.1 percent despite the fact that prior year period was obviously peak covid where there was no spend on uh travel entertainment etc which we started to see come back obviously um in, in the half reported here We've got another slide looking at sort of growth in margin over the last three years, and also with some views about how that's going to change going forward in a couple of slides time, which Neil will run through. That translated into our first statutory profit. I'll again run through this in a lot more detail in a minute, but we don't believe a statutory profit number is the right way to view the performance of our business. We continue to believe an adjusted profit number is the right way to view the performance of the business. It basically translates to our cash flow. And I'll talk you through that in a few slides time. In terms of EPS, that translated again into a very strong growth, 81% up to 4.7p versus 2.6p. Again, further detail on that to follow. And all that performance generated significant cash so cash conversion was at 118 percent for the half Uh, our cash improved by 2.6 million despite the fact that we paid 1.8 million out for acquisitions during the period in terms of sort of contract wins in the period again record performance for 54 million of contracts signed in the half up from 25 million in the prior year and that leaves us with a sales backlog number so orders to be fulfilled in the second half of 34.6. Uh, million, yeah, again significantly up on prior. year. So if you take the 34.6 million and add it to the first half 37.5 million, we get to you know circa 72 million for the year against analyst consensus of 77. So very little additional work to be won in the period um, to deliver and hit that number. You know, giving us good confidence over full year outlook. Worth also noting that we have announced an interim dividend of 0.3p, which is up 50% on prior year as well. Moving on, as most of you will know that have joined these calls before, if you haven't before, we're a very purpose-led organisation and we balance and think about profit and purpose in equal measure, so delighted to report our ESG results as well for the period. I'll just touch on these before coming back to some more financials in a second. Our workforce continues to grow at pace. We hired 103 people in the period. And what we're delighted about is that we continue to see a happy workforce that continues to be confident in leaders, despite the fact that we are going through significant change at TPX Impact. So we announced the move to one brand back here at the end of the summer, working with our teams through that transition period over the last so three months and into the new year. So it's great to see that our team are, are on board with that. In terms of um, diversity, we're very keen to create a diverse organisation, as diverse an organisation as as possible. We believe that will deliver the best return, as well as being in line with our values. And we've got now 51% of women in our business. I think most pleasingly, in in terms of statistics around that, we have, of the 13 businesses that we've acquired, um, it's interesting to note that 26 out of the 28 board members on those businesses were male at acquisition. Um, and two female, um, and we now have a leadership group, uh, senior leadership group within our organization that is is pretty much exactly 50-50 male-female split. We continue to invest in communities and donated 702 hours to communities in the first half, as well as continuing to run our Future Leaders Program that supports entrepreneurs from disadvantaged backgrounds or social entrepreneurs, which is, uh, I have to say, a flagship for us and really exciting. We've got a, a cohort finishing tomorrow. Back looking at some of the financials, this is just shows a little bit of the performance of the group since we came together. For many of you, won't know that you know effectively we came together on the fourth of December two thousand and eighteen, and have grown significantly from what was a pre-IPO number of about fifteen million revenue, up to consensus uh, this year of seventy-seven million, and that continues to drive uh, EBITDA growth as well. This next slide just talks you through cash flow, and again, just want to highlight why I see an adjusted number of profit is the right way to view the performance of the business. You can see here that adjusted EBITDA was 5.3 million, which translated into net cash from operations of 5.1, despite the exceptional costs that occurred in the half relating to acquisitions. The only other point I'd make in here really is that net cash from acquisitions looks like a positive, like that we paid 0.7 million and that the final number there on the right hand side shows 4.7 million cash increase in the period. For those that were concentrating at the start, I did say it was only 2.6 million. From a statutory perspective, our cash increased by 4.7 million, but there was 2.1 million of cash that was payable out for acquisitions post period end. So we basically removed it from our cash position at the year end when when we've been reporting it. In terms of revenue breakdown, if anyone's seen this uh, historically, you'll note that the only major shift here is around recurring revenue, where we've seen a a significant increase from 20% to 33%, largely as a result of, of the acquisition of kits back in March of 2021, which is a predominantly managed service business so you can see that that has pushed up our recurring revenue which obviously gives us better visibility at the start of every year we continue to have a significant amount of repeat business of customers continuing to work with us you know where we've worked with them historically and continue to do a good job for them just just going to spend a bit more time so this is the statutory p l you can see the first statutory profit at, at two hundred seventy-eight thousand pounds continue i'm going to make this point Three or four times today, because we've just seen a few comments ar- ar- around this and just want to make it super clear um, why why that number um ha- is interesting, but 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 we prefer to focus on the on the, the number on the next slide. So if you take the 278 and add back the tax charge there, that would take you to our statutory profit before tax of 559 at the top of that slide. In terms of the difference between the statutory profit and our adjusted profit before tax number there of four and a half million. There are a number of of numbers in here, which I'm just going to spend a bit of time on. So you can see an amortization charge in the period of two and a half million. And uh, this is pretty boring accountancy stuff, but I'll just quickly explain it. So the reason this occurs and it didn't used to occur is a change in the accounting treatment for acquisitions. If we acquire a business for, I'm going to call 11 million pounds with one million pounds worth of net assets, historically, you would recognize 10 million pounds as goodwill. And that goodwill would go onto the balance sheet, and it would be assessed every year for impairment against the profitability of that business and uh, assuming the business continued to perform well, that asset would continue to sit there at infinitum an and be viewed each year for impairment. The rules changed like three or four or five years ago to mean that you could no longer put all of that goodwill into goodwill, and you had to recognize some in intangible assets and typically, you would see about 30% of that number now recorded in intangible assets. So, in the same scenario, of 10 million of effective goodwill in all days would mean 7 million goes into goodwill and 3 million goes into intangible assets, you then have to write off that 3 million of intangible assets, notwithstanding the performance of the business over you know four years or so, which is basically what that charge is there. So that's what the amortisation charge is. The loss on fair value movement of contingent consideration. We talked about this historically. We said it would come down and it will come down. This is a legacy of the earnouts, the structures that we historically had in place, which meant that we would pay additional consideration for businesses based on performance. And again, just to go into a bit of detail, if we were buying that business, a business for 11 million, and there was an earn out where we might have to pay another say two million pounds we have to make an assessment at the point we bought it about how much further consideration we would pay out if we assumed it was 12 million we would pay out and actually they delivered 13 million we had to pay out so that extra one million pounds we have to pay out goes through the p as a charge just based on us underestimating uh, that number. It could be that a business underperforms, you end up actually with a clawback situation, and we would then end up with a credit through our PL, which would make our stat profit look incredibly positive. Despite the fact that perhaps our overall performance wasn't very strong. So that's again why for us it's not a number that should be included at all in here. But as I say, that will start to disappear from our numbers going forward because yeah, we're no longer looking at deals with earnouts in place. And the last deal with an earnout uh, completes at the end of this financial year. So yeah, we anticipate seeing that, that number really fall away over the next 12 months the share-based payments in there that we add back in line with our peers and also then you've got some costs relating to acquisitions as well as some investment we've made into a SaaS AI product that Neil's going to talk you through a little bit in a second and that takes you through to the adjusted profit number and again that's broadly the number that, that translates then into cash. In terms of then how this then flows through to EPS we use that profit after tax number from the prior slide adjusted number we then look at this on a very prudent basis we take the weighted average basic shares in issue during the period Um, we add in the maximum shares to be issued subject to share options and then we look at the maximum contingent consideration that we could pay out based on uh, maximum dilution so a lot of the historic deals we've signed where these shares are still to be issued those shares could be issued at the higher of 74p and the current share price at 74p obviously that would result in significantly more dilution so in this case uh, about 7.2 million shares the reality is is that based on the share price on the 30th of november that number of shares drops to 2.15 million shares which would have improved EPS. well if you use that number it would improve EPS to 4.9p last slide for me here is the balance sheet again you can see that goodwill and intangible assets point that i was talking to you about earlier cash you can see 10.4 million We've reported adjusted cash minus that that 2.1 million that's payable out for acquisitions. In terms of borrowings, continue to be well supported by HSBC, but our net debt position at 4.7 million is below, so about 0.4 times net debt to EBITDA ratio, and the facility is up to two times. Um, so considerable headroom for us to expand uh, and make further acquisitions with debt without putting too much pressure on the balance sheet. I would note that the contingent consideration here is 2.1 of that is the cash that we saw on the cash side that I've taken out and the remainder is the shares that we saw in the EPS calculation. So non-cash and equally the deferred tax is non-cash as well. So once you strip out the the contingent consideration and deferred tax, we've got a current ratio of 1.9 times up from 1.7 at the end of last year. So yeah, strengthening balance sheet in the period. Uh, And that is it from me, back to you now.
1: Cool, thank you very much. So, quick operational review of the half things that i haven't talked about yet so for example the organic growth you see that we won five three million pound plus contracts in the half versus four three million pound plus contracts in the entire financial year you know great news there and that plays out against probably three three million pound plus contracts won by all the companies in their collective histories that probably runs to, to multiple decades so you can see that trajectory we're becoming very used to winning um larger contracts it's become you know whereas pro possibly for some of our people it would have phased them before today as i look at our pipeline you know we have multiple significant contracts on there it's become the normal thing to do you know i'd love to get it to, to one a month and um but but you know I, I, that's kind of the trajectory that we're heading towards over the next year or a so, year or so talked about the acquisition of nudge already and expanding into pharmaceuticals um, actually I haven't t- touched on utilities. So we you'll have seen that we announced back in September that we want a contract with a utilities company worth up to 10 million pounds over five years. a you know, Number of things interesting there. First the utilities, next thing's a five-year contract. The next thing is actually we leveraged capabilities that we brought in through the acquisition of kits and the referenceability that we had there. To win that contract if we hadn't had that reference ability I don't think we would have won that 10 million pound uh, contract so you know really leveraging what we've bought into other parts of the group and growing out revenues accordingly we have a continued strong a pipeline you know expect us to see historically we've done three or four deals for every financial year and I guess you'd expect us to continue to do that we've done one in the half and so expect us to do more um, more m a really good pipeline. There are some specific gaps in our portfolio that we're looking to to cover off um, today. Um, On the ESG side, we achieved social value quality mark level one. This is a new accreditation. Cabinet Office have already been accredited to it. Only about 50 organisations across a multitude of sectors that have achieved this so far. And it's really a sign of where, where we want to go to. I'll come and talk about B Corporation in a bit as well. We launched our employee resource group. So, you know, diversity and inclusion is a big deal for us. And the way that we make that happen is that we provide forums for people for, in our case, for women, LGBTQI and uh, minority ethnic groups. We provide those forums for our, our employees, create safe spaces. And as a consequence, it means that we're able to find more people from diverse backgrounds to come join the organization. And that, that you know, we, we truly believe that a diverse organization makes the best decisions and um and and there are so many examples operationally where i see that every day we launched our board mentoring program so one of the things we recognize and you'll see in the stats that ollie presented is uh, we lack ethnic minority representation at the most senior levels of the company and that's a societal thing so what we've done is we've offered up our plc board members have offered up their time to mentor individuals from within our organization and that's a program that's up and running and, and, and you know i think the people who are participating are really enjoying that on the innovation side ollie mentioned open dialogue i think i mentioned it earlier as well so what that is is, so we bought green Street labs in early 2019 we always knew there was something in there that was bought as a services company around conversational ai um, we always knew there was something in there though so we put some money into r d against this and launched a SaaS product, conversational AI SaaS product, in August. And we've been kind of blown away by what's happened there. So it's been marketed to conversational designers, they're very specific job titles, so very easy to market to online. And we found that there are some globally significant organizations that have picked up on it. And in fact, you know, one or two, one in particular that I know of, has called it a game changer in conversational AI. So the the ability to genuinely speak to uh, and have a conversation with Alexa. And so what we've decided to do, because that needs to go off on its own trajectory now, it needs to have its own funding. You know, we are a cash generative, growing, profitable services company. This is not the right home for a potential um, a unicorn um, that, that we believe this this could well be on uh, with the right execution and the right team and the right plan the right money. Um, so, you know, that will be spun out. We will retain a minority ownership position in that. Um, and then it can go off on its own journey and it, it means that we can you know divert our own um cash towards growing this the, the core business that we are today uh, and then the big move is the the move to the single integrated brand in the uk and as part of that we've appointed the new leadership team as Ollie touched on earlier so you know it's been a busy busy half as you might expect us to have and you know i guess We've become known as having those kind of quite intense periods <laughs> for them to continue. So, uh, you know, long may it continue. And I'll, I'll talk about Outlook in a bit, but long may it continue into the into the second half and beyond. Um, in terms of our market, you know, some of you will have seen this already. This is the macro picture. So, this is taken from Tech Market Views Public Sector um, Software and IT Services Report for 2021, and what it shows you is new versus heritage. So, new means move to cloud agile working practices, um, design-led work, and data as well. And, you know, you see that that's the place that we play in. Our larger systems integrated type companies have always played in that kind of heritage space and are trying to move into this new space. Sometimes we believe that their organisational structure, the way their way of working, makes it very difficult for them to be competitive in this space. Obviously, they continue to win there, but, whether the, you know, whether the client's getting great outcomes is a different matter. So this is the new space that we're working in. As you can see, by 2024, expected to be 57% of the market. You know, that's the world that we operate in, um, you know, significant growth, great opportunity in front of us as a consequence of that. We recently took another view on the market and had some further data produced for us, which is taking global data's report, adding it to tech market views and kind of creating a blended view, because what we wanted to understand is how much of that what is broadly lumped into IT services. How much of that is technology? How much of that is data? How much of that is design? Uh, as you see here, technology is the lion's share at 46%. What's startling and, and interesting is data though, right? So you see 33% there in analytics, machine learning, and you know, significant opportunities there. And, and that's an area that we don't have an offer in today, really, we, we kind of do, but it's not as strong as it could be. So I think from an M&A perspective, you'll expect to see us look to fill that gap. What's also interesting is 20% in design design is not designing like front-end development or whatever it's, it's not what design is design is looking at a service as it works today and redesigning how it works so a program of work that we're doing right now for land Reg is looking to redesign how the house buying process works in the uk you know it's archaic it's slow it's frustrating and so they've asked us and a very short engagement actually as part of a bigger program that we're doing for them to really look at how how does that work how can we improve it how can digital transformation really help us to change the way that 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 can actually work really exciting work um that, that we're doing there and i would say that we probably have the largest public sector focused service design team in the uk and and, and you know while we've been disparate, we've not been able to make that claim. While we bring everything together, we can make that claim. And I think that's something that you'll see us market into the future. So, so very exciting there in terms of strategy. So, you know, what I'll cover off is the big thing is coming together. And, you know, why are we doing that? So in all honesty, you know, what, what has been happening up until recently is we had our family of brands approach with a, an underlying kind of um, collaboration layer it was great and it, it had worked. Clearly it, it, it had worked. But we could see areas of friction that were emerging and becoming bigger and bigger and it's something that we needed to deal with so you know firstly typically on a public sector bid you get the date of publication of the request proposal through to first submission you usually get 10 days we were spending the first day so 10 percent of our time working out which brand to front it with clearly that's a waste of time it's not something we're looking for also when we won stuff we would then have a scramble for who's going to staff it you know have you got any people over there and then this internal conversation between internal p l owners around whether they were going to release their stuff so you know one p l owner that might have had availability might be saying well you know i'm not sure because i've got this other deal that i'm working on and maybe that will land and so I don't, i'm not sure i want to release my people which is part of how you end up with more contractors than you need uh, or more associates than you typically need so so breaking down those silos is you know one of the big wins as is sector sales specialist you know, it, 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 we'd got to the point where we had multiple companies, each with capability to sell into local government. And so bringing it all together, having a single group for central government, a single group for health, a single group for local government, etc. gives us some real um, leverageability there. In terms of marketing, if you look at the combined marketing organization and cost of all of our companies doing their own marketing, Put it all together, you end up with you know substantially greater opportunities to market a brand new brand um, as an integrated offer, uh, an end-to-end integrated offer, so that our customers really understand the the capability and breadth of, of what we can do. So huge opportunities there about being more effective, efficiencies. You know, we're putting in a new finance system at the moment, NetSuite. We're putting in a new HR system at the moment. We're putting in a new recruitment uh, management system at the moment. And then after that will come CRM and professional service automation. These, you know, It will take time. Once they're in, we're convinced that we end up with a substantially more efficient organization as a consequence. Shared services, marketing and sales I've talked about, but HR and finance. HR have already come together to a single integrated HR team. And last half alone, we hired 103 people. So it just shows you the effect that you can do of bringing the capabilities together and, and leveraging all of our capabilities. And, and, and there's more to come there. In terms of better utilization, one of the things we're doing in the reorg and, and bringing everything together is creating a function what we, we call kind of air traffic control, which is looking out at what's coming down the pipe from a, a forecasting perspective and then looking at what our projects were on and where our people are and, and then working through how to maximize that kind of utilization. I think that is where we'll end up with some further margin opportunities as well. In terms of attracting the right talent, you know, bringing it all together means that we can really differentiate ourselves as an employer and, and really create a modern, 2021 and plus employee value proposition. You know, recognizing the need for hybrid working, recognizing the need for people to live wherever they want to live, and embracing that fully as an employer. More diverse leadership team, that the sort of 50 50 male female split in our leadership team means that we can attract even more talent towards us. As a consequence of that and you'll see us launch an academy and i I will talk about an academy in a little while and then finally in terms of maximizing impact you know there's enhanced investment in communities but b corp let me focus on b corp in the interest of time so b corp is a global certification program really designed to certify companies that are truly run in the interest of multiple stakeholders all stakeholders rather than just exclusively in the name of profit those of you that have heard me speak before will know that I firmly believe that companies running this way end up delivering better shareholder value um, because they're just better run uh, companies. The reality is that we would get B Corp status today if we're a single UK p At the moment, it would be too hard because of the multiple legal entities that we have. As we bring it all together, we will then go for B Corp status and uh, we anticipate getting that at the very latest by March of 2023 and then continuing to focus on that kind of impactful work. The house buying process, how many of us have been frustrated by that in the past? And so driving work like that really motivates our people and and really motivates us. It's it's interesting, it's it's exciting work. There have been some commentary from others around margin pressure at the moment. and, And so I just wanted to talk about that and talk about our overall EBITDA levels directly after this. So a few things here. So firstly, I think, what has happened for us is that we have been previous prior to pandemic we were very london centric our biggest offices were in london and so we were paying london-like wages and we always have done and so with the pandemic we then started recruiting people from all over the place and in fact we've just done a map of all of our people all the postcodes and you know the spread that i see on that map is everything you know everything from cornwall to edinburgh and pretty much everything in between of the people that we've recruited but what we've never done is we've never stopped to say, oh, hang on, um, should we be paying, you know, what should we be paying to a, a developer in South Wales versus a developer in London or whatever? We've just used the same salaries. And I think what we've done is we've we've exported inflation to others. Um, so if there are companies out there, and I use Admiral Insurance because it's an example that I know, Admiral Insurance in South Wales have historically traded on the fact and taken an advantage of the fact that staffing costs are typically a lot lower in South Wales. Now, what we're now doing is going to companies and hiring people out of them, paying the salaries that we've always paid. So yes, we're seeing wage inflation, but we're seeing wage inflation that for us is normal rather than exceptional. And I think that's one thing that I think I'll talk to. In terms of attracting the right talent, You know, we are circa 50 odd percent associate to full-time employee. A full-time employee is 15% on average 15% lower cost compared to a contractor when everything's loaded up and so just switching that a bit obviously has a margin lever for us so you know that's really interesting for us to start to do and as we mature up our brand mature up our employee value proposition I think we can begin to switch that academy so we will launch our own academy and so expect to hear more from us on that in, in in due course I have to say though you know, this is all about getting the right balance of being able to put people onto a client project that know what they're doing and delivering on that quality. I think if you put too many sort of graduates from your academy onto a client, I think one of the inevitabilities is that you will lose project quality. We will not drop our product quality. It's just it's too embedded in who we are. So we will use the academy. You know, whether we'll take in 30, 40% of our intake from the academy, I think is a different thing. And then the last thing is leveraging Bulgaria. Now, we've not really been able to leverage our Bulgarian operation as much as we could do because of public sector. So, you know, particularly central government is adverse to using um, people that are located outside of the UK. However, our commercial clients, the utilities client and another one, another significant client that we recently won in commercial sector, both of those contracts involve us leveraging some of the Bulgarian operations. So we begin to see that grow. And, you know, the gross margin opportunity in some of that is is 50% plus so again it's another lever for us and so that sort of talks to um some of the other commentary that's kind of out in the market but let me i guess show you a picture which is our EBITDA percentage to date. so FY19 9.5 percent FY20 12.1 percent FY21 13.9 percent quarter that we've just delivered is 14.1 and the expectation for the year is just over 15. so we are on a trajectory to increase our EBITDA margin. And over a few years, our goal is to get to high teens, which is where we think we can get to. We can take this to high teens. Our goal is to get to high teens EBITDA margin. And you know, notwithstanding anything else that's going on in the market, we believe confidently, because of the levers that we've got, um, that we can continue to get there and, and the economies that will kick in as a consequence of bringing everything together. So I'd finally just reiterate the commercial vision. So some of you know this, so we had a commercial vision to march of 23 previously to reach 100 million run rate we feel like we're about to smash through that so we thought we better set a new goal before we smash through it rather than sort of flailing around trying to find the next goal so we set ourselves a goal of 200 million run rate by march of 25 and one of the drivers for that is just to become a major public sector player um, become a top 20 and that requires on a run rate basis to be about 150 and obviously these numbers are changing all the time but certainly the goal is to be 200 million run rate by March 25, continue to deliver on that 10 to 15 percent like for like organic growth, continue to make further earnings enhancing acquisitions. Each of these acquisitions, people talk about dilution, um, each of these acquisitions adds to EPS every time, you know, they're always earnings enhancing and they always add to EPS. And I think the magic number for us has always been EPS. you know, it's it's a case of how much of a percentage of the the bigger pie do you own, rather than 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 the actual percentage itself, as far as we're concerned. And then continue to ensure that we generate cash strongly, and and as you've seen in the half, one hundred and eighteen percent cash conversion ratio, and continue to deliver on a dividend. And a lot of people ask us why we do that when we're in growth mode, like we are. I think it's just great. You know, we're a services company. We spin off cash. Um, we think it's good discipline for us to do that. So we're very pleased to to, to announce the interim of 0.3 pence. And you, you can see the half 1, 22 progress that we've made against each of those um, so far as well. Obviously, one thing we always do is have our financial vision that always sits alongside our ESG vision. So we intend to halve the 21 gaps that we've identified across representation, pay, inclusion for employees from underrepresented backgrounds and continue to work hard at that we are carbon neutral already we want to put a stamp on the business that says we are net zero now that is difficult to do because it takes years to become certified or verified by sbti because you need years of data so we we're hiring a sustainability manager to help us to pull all that data together but we know already that we are we are carbon neutral um, and then from a community perspective, you know, the big thing this country needs is people to, to enter digital careers. And so far we've kick-started the careers of, of 1,092 people against the goal of 5,000. Outlook for the rest of the half, I think as Ollie said, so we have 37.5 million revenue in the first half. We've got 34.6 million booked to be recognized in the second half, so that's 72.1 against analysts' expectation of 77. So we're feeling very confident to deliver in line with those recently upgraded expectations. We will continue to drive at this change program that we're doing to a single brand. Our goal is to end up on the first of April with the sales and marketing um, part of the organization, the organizational change largely done, still lots more work to do, but so that we hit first of April, beginning of the new financial year, running, firing on all cylinders, ready to ready to drive the next phase of growth. From our perspective, the last three years, you know, we've been listed three years this week. The last three years have been the warm-up act and, and we intend to take this platform that we've now created to really start to grow, uh, grow from here and head towards that 200 million. So on that note, um, I think we'll take questions.
0: We have a question here that says, could you explain why you're moving away from acquisitions structured with deferred considerations or earnouts?
1: Um, I'll start and you know, maybe Oli can join, uh, I'll add to it. But the, the reason being, we're moving towards um, an integrated organization and what earnouts do is stop you from being able to integrate um, companies as quickly as you might want to. Um, you know, take Nudge Digital as, as an example. They're great in pharmaceuticals. We want Nudge Digital and the, and the, 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 the business development people in Nudge Digital to focus on. Going out winning pharmaceutical clients and growing those pharmaceutical clients. They don't need to be worrying about all the back office stuff and all the other bits that, that they typically have to do um, when they're running their own PL standalone company, with, and particularly within the constraint of, a, of an earnout. Um, and so it just allows us to integrate companies faster.
0: Thank you. And there's a question Who's Grant Harris, a 20% holder? Will he divest to institutions in time?
1: um i think grant is a 12% holder um and he was the um the founder of kits um and so he's come in um you know, on a part cash part shares deal that we agreed I, and yes he will divest to institutions I and mean, we 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 have great institutional demand as i said grant gone from 8% holding to 21% holding um in in just over a year uh, or in about a year sorry and um uh, and we see, we continue to meet institutions and continue to see, you know, we're on many, many more watch lists um, than we were on before. So, uh, yeah, you would expect to see that come down.
0: Thank you. How's the staff feedback been to the new leadership structure under TPX?
1: We, we measure a monthly pulse of our staff and I think we scored 7.4 out of 10 um, the last time around. And that's been pretty consistent now for um, over a year. So, if you look at how we scored a year ago when there wasn't this change and um, you know people were uh, you know were working within their own uh, individual p within their own brands it was about the same score as we're getting today uh, one thing we did do is we um, we pulled all of our u k people together into a single place um, at the back end of September It's great to be in a room with with hundreds of people um and um Directly after that, we we ran a, a, a survey where uh, talking asking how excited they were about the opportunity of coming together, uh, where five was really exciting and, and really excited, and one was, you know, complete disaster. Um, not complete disaster, but unhappy. And, you know, of that survey that we ran, 60% scored four and five, um, 30% scored three, um, which you'd expect, right? People sit on the fence and kind of wait for us to deliver on what we're saying rather than necessarily kind of just accept it there and then. And then 10% scored one, and you, you'd expect that, right? I mean, I think that was a brilliant score. I was super happy with that, that only 10% would score one because those people have joined small companies, individual brands, they had an affinity to that, and and to, to for only 10% of people to think that that's, this is going to be a problem for them. You know, we will work with them to, to um, do our best to kind of um, assuage their fears, but at the same time as that, you know, if you joined a company of 20 people and because you always wanted to work for a company of 20 people, I'm sorry, we are 837. Um, there's not a lot we can kind of do about that. But um, at the same time as that, there is a, a pool of people that we think that out in the big systems integrators, they are frustrated by the processes that they work within that are, would would love to come and work in this um, company uh, that we're creating. So. Um, you know, we want to bring every single person with us. Absolutely, we want to bring every single person with us, but we fully accept that we can't bring every single individual with us.
0: Thank you. And how are public sector bodies viewing digital transformation at the moment? Have they moved out of crisis mode?
1: Uh, very much so. In fact, you know, I, I think they moved out of crisis mode pretty quickly last year. You know, it it start, we started to win projects around, for example, um, the first and uh, it's blood and transplant deal, I think was, was it last year? It was, probably was last year, wasn't it? And that's in no way a, a you know, a, an emergency COVID related type thing. Most of what we're winning is not, in fact, none of what we've won I, haven't won. I don't think we've won anything that's COVID related since pretty much half one last year where we did win, you know, a few projects. Um, ever since then, half two last year and then half one just gone. It's that we haven't won any, there hasn't been any COVID related projects for us.
0: Thank you. And what's your aspiration to have private versus public sector breakdown in revenues by the time you reach your 2025
1: goal? We we stated 75-25 um, in the favour of public. Now, whether that is you know it turns out i mean our, our commercial sector businesses are beginning to grow um you know that 10 million pound contract with the utilities company but others as well that we've we've recently won that haven't fed through to numbers yet um you know i think we've got a, a healthy competitive tension running internally which is fine right each are trying to outgun each other um and so that that helps us to um helps us to get there but you know it's it's kind of difficult to say. The only the only number we've put out there right now is seventy-five twenty-five.
0: And what's the difference between winning a public sector and winning private sector? Is it quicker decision making in one than the other? And and what other factors are different between the two?
1: Yes, it's a contrary to popular belief, winning in public sector is way faster than winning in commercial sector. And you know, that, that utilities client took eight months from Decision to signing Um, or from the process rather took eight months and the signing itself took months and months Um, You know whereas you can win a five six million pound public sector contract in two months flat um, Because what they do is they publish their timetable alongside the, the the RFP So there'll be you'll respond to phase one on this date. There will be a shortlist on this date there will be um an, you'll then have to submit a, a detailed proposal and do your presentation by that date and the contract will be awarded by that date and the scoring framework is this and um you know it's all public and so i, I mean i up until this company i never worked public sector before i have to say it's quite refreshing to to find ourselves here where you can have that whereas I think commercial sector is much much harder because it's not subject to such rigorous process um, typically as, as that. So, so yeah, it's, it's quicker in public sector.
0: And um, will you be looking for acquisitions to grow your commercial sector, or is that not a criteria for acquisition?
1: The main criteria for acquisitions are continue to be access to new um, new verticals, um, as we did with Nudge, um, but also then new capabilities. Um, you know so for example one of the things that we're not strong in right now is the microsoft stack around we're, we're strong in azure in cloud migration and migrate to azure um but we're not strong in the kind of um office 365 um, or microsoft 365 power platform um and um uh, that, that that kind of suite of products you know where public sector both crown commercial um, cabinet office and uh nhs have signed big deals with microsoft and we're not we're not very big in that space so so i think you know there are areas that we're looking to add and, and data would be another one Areas that we're looking to add
0: where we can really add to our capability tremendous thank you very much and that's the end of questions do you have any closing remarks
1: uh no just uh thank you all so much for giving up uh, an hour of your time um and uh you know we, we've had a great half year we're really confident about um hitting those expectations for the the, the remainder of the year and and think we're, as i said earlier i think we're we've just built we're building the platform now for the next stage of growth for for the organization and uh, we're really looking forward to, to making it happen
0: pi world videos and podcasts are for general information and interest they do not constitute any kind of recommendation or inducement to buy shares of any company PI World is not offering any kind of financial advice and nothing in our material should be taken as such.